Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Years ago, as the Syrian civil war escalated, the Syrian government began obstructing access to humanitarian relief in rebel-held parts of the country. So, in 2014, the UN Security Council took the extraordinary step of allowing the United Nations to deliver humanitarian relief to parts of Syria without the consent of the Syrian government and in violation of Syrian sovereignty. This has never happened before at the UN, which requires the cooperation or at the very least the consent of the government on whose territory aid is being delivered. For the past eight years now, humanitarian aid has been able to reach besieged parts of Syria through border crossings, mainly from Turkey into northern Syria. But in recent years, divisions at the Security Council, namely Russian objections to this arrangement, have significantly limited this aid operation. There is now just one border crossing, called Bab al-Hawa, in which aid is delivered from Turkey to rebel-held parts of Idlib province in northern Syria. And on July 10th this year, that last border crossing may close. Today's episode is in two parts. First, you will hear from Vanessa Jackson, the UN representative for CARE International, a large humanitarian relief organization with operations in Idlib. She explains the broader diplomatic context in which this last border crossing may be forced shut by Russia. Then you will hear my conversation with Ismail al-Abdullah, who is a volunteer in Idlib with the Syrian Civil Defense Forces, better known as the White Helmets. He discusses at length the humanitarian situation in Idlib and the implications of severing the last cross-border lifeline of humanitarian aid. This episode is obviously timely if you're listening to this contemporaneously. I've had Vanessa Jackson on the podcast before, ahead of other crucial votes at the Security Council around this border crossing arrangement, and I am glad to have her back. So here is Vanessa Jackson of CARE International, followed by Ismail Al-Abdullah from the White Helmets. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yes, even back in 2014, this was a really extraordinary move by the Security Council. It was the first time that they had authorized the UN to deliver humanitarian aid without the consent of the host government, so in this case, the government of Syria. 
And this was really because the situation on the ground for civilians in Syria was already very extreme. The resolution itself talks about, you know, nearly a quarter of a million people being trapped in besieged areas. It was a period where uh, many towns were either hard to reach or actually besieged by the Syrian government and in some cases other armed groups. Uh, you had things like barrel bombs and aerial bombardment being used and you had the resolution talking about arbitrary and willful uh, withholding of consent to allow humanitarian aid in. So it really, you know, all these hallmarks that we've come to be quite familiar with about the Syrian conflict were all very already in play by about July of 2014, which is when the council took this step. And we then saw the conflict actually escalate quite significantly in the subsequent years where Russia was much more involved as a active party to the conflict and the toll that it began to take on civilians escalated uh, along with that. So initially, this 2014 Security Council resolution authorized the delivery of aid across several border points into Syria. Can you just maybe briefly explain, like, how does that work? Like, how does an entity like CARE um, provide that aid across the border? Yes, you're right. There there were four crossings initially. Um, So one was down in the south into Jordan two in the north into Syria, and the fourth crossing also in the north but into or from Iraq into Syria. And the resolution really um, tried to incorporate this into a comprehensive or whole of Syria uh, humanitarian response. So the UN was operating um, in most parts of Syria at that time. So there was what we call cross-line operations happening, so aid moving within the country but having to cross active lines of conflict. And then this resolution allowed this cross-border element to come in and it brought with it a very uh, rigorous monitoring mechanism to make sure that there was minimal risk that any of this aid would be diverted into um, the hands of any kind of armed forces, that it really would reach the people with the humanitarian needs on the ground. And we've seen the sophistication of that monitoring mechanism really become a gold standard in UN practice. Um, It it is, um, by all accounts, including the Secretary General, saying that it really is the most uh, scrutinised humanitarian operation in the world. So, It combines many, many different forms of scrutiny. You know, everything is um, able to be tracked with a barcode. There's third-party independent monitoring. There's monitoring um, every step of the way from the moment it um, goes onto a UN convoy truck to the minute it goes into a warehouse to the time it it reaches the hands of the civilian in in a community inside Syria. Um, So... I, I don't think that um, it's it's hyperbole. It really is quite a sophisticated and um, you know technology intensive and resource intensive operation. But that's what we really need to give Security Council members the assurance that this operation is complying with humanitarian principles and humanitarian law from beginning to end. 
So despite those assurances and despite the apparent effectiveness of this way of delivering aid to besieged populations in Syria since 2014, uh, there has been a contraction of uh, the number of border crossings that can be used to deliver this aid. Can you explain like why is it or when was it, I should say, that Russia began to put up some objections to this mechanism? Yes, that's right. It, it really has been a very fraught resolution. And that really began um, towards the end of 2017. So the first few years were relatively smooth and the council um, was relatively united about the humanitarian imperative on the ground. But as the conflict developed, and as I said, Syria became a very active party to that conflict, um, we saw the narrative begin to shift for countries, particularly Russia, but also um, China, really followed suit. And the conversation from their side became more about the sovereignty of the Syrian government under international law. It is, you know, the government that's responsible for humanitarian assistance to its own populations. And so they began to challenge this narrative that uh, the international community needed to allow the UN to be taking on that humanitarian responsibility. And so in 2017, um, that was when consensus was broken and we saw um, both Russia and China abstain from the resolution. So they didn't stand in the way of its renewal, but they began to voice objections and suggest alternative ways of meeting humanitarian needs that were more in line with um, the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Syria. That happened again in 2018. The resolution was, you know, adopted again, but they abstained. And then in December of 2019, there was much more serious challenges and we saw Russia for the first time use its veto on a humanitarian resolution concerning Syria and it really took the council, they had to sort of meet um, all over the Christmas and New Year period and it took them until the 10th of January to actually finally agree on a text but in that process two of the four crossings were not reauthorised and Russia insisted that um, the length of time that the operation could continue would only be six months rather than the 12 months, which had been standard practice. So that means uh, that every July now, since then, there has been this real fraught moment in which aid agencies like yours are unsure if the aid operation will continue. That's exactly right. And I think most importantly, it's it's important to stress how difficult and upsetting this is for people inside Syria, because this really is a life and death operation for them. They know that if the food, the shelter, the winter clothing, the medical assistance, the medical teams, the midwife training, um, you know, all these things, and they're not just food and goods. There are a lot of important life-saving services that, that are part of this cross-border operation. So 
I think we we need to remember for the people of Syria just how stressful and anxiety-provoking every June-July period is for them when this cloud hangs over their future. And I think um, we've, we've seen that um, anxiety really escalate. And I think, like, um, in July of 2020, um, the third crossing was closed. We were literally down to one crossing. Luckily, it was the major crossing from Turkey into Syria. Uh, and, and now we know that supporting four million people in northwest Syria. Um, so, again, we're, we're facing this same um, uncertainty and a serious question as to whether or not uh, the council will renew this resolution, and you know, obviously, with um, the the situation globally being even more complex this year, with a conflict in Ukraine that's having real spillover effects for the global region, but the Middle East in particular, that just adds another dimension of concern and anxiety for for Syrians and anyone who's wanting to see this cross border mechanism continue. Since 2019, uh, Russian objections have led to the closing of all but one border crossing, the Bab al-Hawa border crossing, which you noted is is the major one. Um, And last year, uh, it took the personal intervention of Joe Biden speaking directly with Vladimir Putin to uh, have him sort of smooth the edges and allow the continued operation of this single border crossing. But now we're in like a completely geopolitical environment that's so different from what it was just a year ago. And it seems that the sort of lines of communication between the West and the Russians are are sort of so severed right now that the chances of the Security Council passing this resolution to allow this crossing to remain open seem fairly slim at this point. Am I reading this wrong? I think that's the real point of debate, like just how much of a spillover into council dynamics will Ukraine be in this particular resolution negotiation. We are actually hearing positive noises that there's a tacit agreement amongst many council members that Ukraine should be kept separate that for you know whatever disputes and disagreements and they are quite um, passionate when it comes to Ukraine um, that needs to be quarantined from the discussion about Syria and Syria needs to be treated as a purely humanitarian um, complex situation that the council has a responsibility to resolve by putting the needs of Syrians first. So we very much hope that those uh, noises are actually accurate and that we can see um, the politics kept at bay. Um, that's obviously a very um, optimistic reading, but that's that's really encouraging that I think a lot of council members realise just how serious this decision is and Yes, as you said, in the past, we have seen um, Moscow and Washington at the highest levels actually having the closed-door negotiations to find a way through the politics to make sure that we do get a renewal that 
the lifeline stays open and that it is for a minimum of 12 months. We had a very convoluted formula last year, but in practice it meant that there was a full 12-month renewal for the operation and that's really what we have to see this year as well. We might end up um, with um, some additional new language in the text to provide some kind of a sweetener for for Russia and um, countries like China that are saying they want to see uh, a shift from this cross-border focus to much more aid being delivered cross-line, so from Damascus to different parts of Syria. Um, but I think that that's really where the negotiations are going to reveal exactly what can these parties agree. Um, and obviously there are other players involved. It's it's the Turkish government as well because it's a crossing on their territory. Um, so I think um, to the best of people's ability of just trying to keep the focus on the humanitarian needs of Syrians is really how we hope this whole conversation will be framed over the next couple of weeks. Should the border crossing effectively close on July 10th? What would that mean for care? What sort of aid that you are delivering now would you no longer be able to deliver? I think the the real question is what does it mean for UN assistance? I think for many of the international INGOs like CARE, our operations will continue and we might be able to scale up a little bit. Um, but the bulk of the humanitarian assistance and the services that come across the border are from UN agencies. And one of the biggest ones is the World Food Program, which provides about 80% of the food going into northwest Syria. So we know that that's feeding well, nearly 2 million people a month. And we know that if the resolution is not renewed, there's only enough food in Syria to probably last through until early September. And that might give us, the, the INGOs, a chance to scale up, but we know, know we can probably only scale up to feed an additional 300,000 people. And that is going to leave a gap of 1 million people by September who will no longer receive WFP food assistance and we won't be able to meet those needs either. And so this is the scale of what really is at stake. How can anyone at this point in time when the needs are higher in northwest Syria than they've ever been in the entire 11 years of conflict, how could the Security Council in all good conscience vote to not reauthorise food, medicine, shelter for people in northwest Syria who will be going into a really severe winter in about four months' time. Uh, Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for your time and coming back on the show to discuss this once again. Thank you. And and I hope we get a very positive outcome for all the people in Syria. But thank you. If all goes according to plan, I won't have to speak with you next year around this time. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Mark. A big thank you to Vanessa. And before we get to my conversation with Ismail Al-Abdullah of the White Helmets, uh, some context. Idlib is located in northern Syria and borders Turkey. It is where millions of people have fled to escape the Syrian regime, and it is the last major rebel stronghold. 
The main rebel group operating in Idlib is known as HTS, which is an offshoot of al-Qaeda and a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. In 2020, fighting in Idlib significantly subsided when Russia and Turkey entered into an agreement. My conversation with Ismail al-Abdullah kicks off with me asking him to describe the fighting in Idlib since that 2020 arrangement. The situation from the very beginning of the days that the ceasefire agreement was reached by Turkey and Russia, the war has it ended. The war is not over in Syria. And in Idlib, we experience continuous bombing attacks from Russia and the Syrian regime. From that, that day, uh, the beginning of 2020, up to now, every day we have bombing, we have casualties, we have people dying. We responded to hundreds of uh, calls of bombing. Russia hasn't stopped. The regime hasn't stopped. They say in their media that battle for Idlib will be in any time. So the fears are still in the hearts of the civilians. What is the humanitarian situation in Idlib today? Are there food shortages, medicine shortages? How are civilians experiencing this conflict in Idlib? Those who were displaced from parts of Syria are now uh, living in northwest Syria, uh, living in uh, war zone. They, they're experiencing something like unbearable people living in tents uh, without anything. Uh, the, the humanitarian aid just depending on to survive. People living in the survival mode every day, every day. Uh, a lot of families who lost breadwinners in the conflict uh, cannot afford the food on their table every day. People, uh, children, we have big number of children, maybe thousands of children who were poor, were poor in the tents. They don't know what the school is. They don't have, if they, if they hear something like the door of their house, of door of uh, my, the door of my, they don't know what the meaning of door. They don't know what the meaning of key to, to, to open their, their home, their house or something. So people, experiencing things never and ever maybe in the human uh, in the century experiencing generation of children without school an example with what's happening in summer now the Assad regime and Russia have a new strategy have a new strategy why bombing the agriculture uh, areas to provide uh, the the bribe to prevent people from getting their livelihood. Uh, they they don't want people to secure livelihood to mm. feed their children. Rather than attacking military targets in you know more urban areas, you're saying that the new tactic by the Syrian regime and Russia is to bomb agricultural areas. You know, disrupting farming, causing fires, that sort of thing. Yeah, they uh, causing fire to destroy the crops for the people, and using what? Using something crescent ball, which is the precise uh, weapon to target the uh, exactly it's precise weapon 
this Chris, uh, crystal ball was used in Syria and as what as white means we documenting this use there uh, on hospitals several defense centers medical points and they killed a lot of civilians we documented seven 70 people were killed in this weapon this weapon and to it in Syria uh, to what to to destroy and kill the people when they uh, use it to destroy a uh, uh, water station water center in Idlib which provides uh, drinkable water for people for more than 300,000 people they use it for what to destroy the infrastructure to prevent people to getting access to water when they use it to kill destroy a hospital why they use it to destroy hospitals? They want to kill the will of people. They want to uh, they want to displace them. The civilians who reside in northwest Syria are paying the price because of what? Because the tension between Russia and the West on what? On Ukraine war. So people now are the victims of many times, hmm. many times. They will be paying price for for everything. Now they will pay the price for. The cross border, which is like something Russia threatening and uh, telling the world will not extend this mandate. I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the role of aid that is transported uh, across the Bab al Hawa uh, crossing point from Turkey into Syria. What is the role of, of that aid? What kind of aid comes through that crossing point on a daily basis? And what role does it play in supporting the humanitarian needs of people in Idlib? This is currently the only lifeline for those living in Northwest Syria. The only lifeline, the aid that comes from the porter, which is like uh, everything for the civilians, everything. Let me say everything, food kits, medical supplies, uh, shelter, uh, tents, uh, access to water, everything, everything now uh, uh, through this border, cross-border, uh, cross-border operation. If they will stop it, if they will stop this mechanism or will stop getting aid from this, for sure, for sure, hunger will increase, medical Cases will go untreated. Millions, millions of people would be at risk of losing shelter assistance, and access to water will be decrease, will decrease. And all this, what will, will, will result? Will result deaths? We will see deaths from hunger. Will we see people die because of lack of our medical supplies? Maybe people will die because of access to drinkable water. Even the uh, NGOs now who will uh, get support, uh, finance support and everything, uh, international NGOs that are operating in Northwest Syria will be affected immediately. All in all sectors and all projects, uh, yearly recovery project, uh, you know, everything, everything. How will, how will the work of the White Helmets be affected and impacted by the potential closure of this border crossing? Our work will be harder our work will be hard. We're not able. We're not governed. We're not like uh, the uh, humanitarian catastrophe in Northwest Syria. Need countries to, to to deal with this. We need a big support. If the uh, white helmets cannot handle this alone, we uh, 
our work will be harder. We cannot meet the needs of people. Uh, everything will be changed. You know, camps, thousands, millions, of, uh, about million of people or million point seven people living in the tents, in the camps. Uh, so how we can provide our services and people in the first place can, cannot afford food on their tables, cannot feed their children, cannot get milk for the children, for the bare babies. Even if they have um, uh, disease, like which is spread in this environment, unsafe prime environment. We cannot afford our services as before. Our work will be much harder. Can you describe just the day-to-day work of the White Helmets in in Idlib today? Our work uh, now, the world knows us as rescue and uh, search and rescue uh, teams. But uh, on on recent days... uh, we have uh, something different. We are now we are pro, uh, providing early recovery services. Uh, we support uh, we support the communities. We work in other infrastructure. We fix, we maintain and fix the roads for people. We uh, help uh, to pave the ways in the uh, camps. We uh, our uh, our work has changed completely, and now we are bigger than before and work in the, in the virus field to elevate is the burden of people. We respond to medical supplies. We respond to the ambulance. We respond to the people who cannot afford to go to the hospital. Our women's centers provide psychological support for those who are in dire need of psychological support. The, we uh, take in some uh, some part, not, not that part in say, uh, mental health we provide for those people who are uh, in dire need of medical care, uh, mental health care. Uh, our programs now different. We're working on many different fields. We're working for the future of Syria, uh, justice and accountability. We're working to uh, our effort to get the people who are harmed and killed Every Syrian behind the bars at the end. So the argument from the Syrian government and the Russian government is that this crossing does not need to stay open because aid could or should just flow from Damascus to Idlib. You know, to me, that's it's sort of obviously problematic. But I'd love to hear from you directly why the idea of receiving aid from Damascus is almost farcical, it seems. But but I'd love to hear in your words why it is problematic, why the Russian proposal okay. is okay. is so challenging. This is, uh, I, I, how can I say, it? the people caused, who caused the humanitarian disaster are being including in the humanitarian solution. The same party that uses chemical weapons to suffocate and kill thousands of people and who uh, detain thousands of people in the, in the prisons. This party who displaced millions and millions of Syrians, now they were trying to give another weapon, which is the aid, humanitarian aid, to, uh, to harm more people to 
to uh, to uh, to to kill more people by starvation by hunger as they did before in Aleppo city, Estrangota, many regions of Syria they use this weapon. They blackmail people for. Uh, I was in Aleppo city in 2016 when we were under siege. There were something like the UN would provide us with. Uh, uh, flower and uh, at the entrance of the Aleppo, they refused and they they said, oh, uh, it's okay, we'll get them. But at the end, they burned Aleppo and destroyed Aleppo. The same thing will happen. They will get the aid. They will uh, weaponize, weaponize this uh, humanitarian aid. And, and many reports made it clear for the whole world that the regime uh, distribute uh, distribute aid in the region or under control of the regime in corrupted way. Why? Because something obvious, the people who loyal to them, the people who, uh, including, uh, were involved in the uh, battles and the attacks on the Syrian civilians, rewarded by the humanitarian uh, and the others knew. So it made it clear, those, those uh, this part who uh, the whole world, the international community, OBCW, they come forward, the use of chemical waste. Now they are giving, giving them another chance to kill the Syrians, another weapon to kill the Syrians. So it's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Just, you know, you know this idea, this idea of giving this party the material aid to give it to to give it to the civilians. So, you know, if I have to guess, unfortunately, it would seem that the Bab al-Hawa crossing will likely close in, in the coming months. We don't know for certain, but it is, to me, a strong likelihood. If that happens, how will the White Helmets adapt to this new environment in which, you know, your lifeline to the outside world is, is essentially shut. I hope not. I hope not. Will for sure will be a humanitarian catastrophe in Northwest Syria. Uh, those civilians who depend on the humanitarian aid will lose everything. As mentioned before, hunger will increase, medical cases will go untreated. A lot of things, but the white humans, uh, our teams, we cannot. Uh, deal with this alone. We or handle we handle this. Uh, the needs of people will be out, out of control. Uh, will be out of control of of, of of everyone. The main. We hope not. This is even imposing and giving this scenario. It's something uh, unbelievable, because there there's no alternative for. You know, alternative for this uh, cross-border mechanism, cross-border operation, operation is something that uh, give larger scale of humanitarian aid. Uh, people get directly uh, the people that need to get their aid directly without any any party that will steal it. You know, uh, we hope not. We hope that they will extend this mechanism because. For sure, the world will witness that uh, we, we will witness something unprecedented, something uh, un, something didn't happen before. Four million people 
will starve, will be, uh, you know, will be uh, at risk of losing their lives. Uh, I don't know, but vitamins cannot handle this alone. We cannot, our abilities, our capability do not give us to handle and meet the needs of the people. Uh, well, Ismail, you know, I, I certainly hope that that worst case scenario does not unfold. Uh, but thank you for speaking with me and, and thank you for your work. All right. Well, a big thank you to Vanessa Jackson for speaking with me and to Ismail Alabdullah for speaking with me from Idlib. And uh, obviously, this episode is being published ahead of that crucial vote. So uh, do pay attention to that vote. And we will certainly revisit this issue in future episodes. All right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye.